Welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Barry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free so you won't miss an episode and ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com, and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. Episode 12 of the Adventures with Grammy podcast takes listeners to museums around the world. The first stop is the Louvre in Paris, where we will meet Le Cinque Eiffel, the Five Eiffels. These fanciful characters experience exciting adventures after the Louvre closes for the day and the Eiffels come to life. Our second guest will give us tips on how to take children to museums and turn the trips into exciting learning adventures. Our first guest is author-illustrator Liliana Leone. She has written and illustrated the series of books, Le Cinq Eiffel, The Five Eiffels. I love your books. It's a magical adventure, a magical ride to learn about art and language and geography and history. How did this series come about? It's a little funny how it came about. In 2013, I had a nephew who asked me to paint a mural in his toy room. I've always enjoyed coloring with colored pencils, draw different characters, cartoon characters, Looney Tunes, Flintstones. And when he requested a mural, I'm like, I don't even know how to paint. (laughs) I mean, I can draw because he wanted a Disney mural. I can draw characters, not a problem but I did not really know how to paint. So I decided to just kind of take a a paint class at one of those craft stores. And the funny thing is the whole purpose of me taking the class was to learn how to paint with acrylic paint on the wall because the class involved learning how to paint. There were different subjects you would be able to paint on canvas. One of the subjects I picked was the Eiffel Tower because I love Paris. I went ahead and painted the Eiffel Tower And instead of painting one Eiffel Tower, I painted five different towers because each one had a different look, a different color, a different appearance. And then I ended up naming each one based on how I painted it. So for example, the one character, the one painting I made was Eiffel was Bonjour. Okay. The reason I called it Bonjour because during the day, the Eiffel Tower is gray and the painting resembled it like a daytime Eiffel Tower. At nighttime, when it's nighttime, the Eiffel Tower shines with light. The second painting I did, I called it Bon Nui, and I painted it gold. Because to me, it reminds me of nighttime. It's light. It shines the yellow light. Then I went on from there and painted three more. Patriotique. To me, I thought, well, I'm going to paint this Eiffel Tower looking like the French flag. And Patriotique, we all know that means patriotic, kind of honoring the flag. So I made that one look like the flag of France. The fourth one, I kind of wanted to look festive, like I, th- I thought of um, Rio de Janeiro, you know, how they have Carnivale there, all the fun colors. So I made the fourth one all fun colors, and I called it uh, Carnival. And then finally, the fifth one I wanted to do, I would think of Venice when they would have their Carnivale, but it was more like, you know, they're big with masks in Venice. 
And I think of, when I think of masks, I think of the black and white mask, you know, like a tragedy comedy type of deal. So I made the final one black and white and I called it Masquerade. I created these five Eiffels and like I said, the whole reason I took the class was to learn how to paint for my, you know, nephew's mural. So I ended up with these paintings and then at the end, you know, I finished his mural, I, I continued with the paint class and then I thought, how cool would it be? I don't even know why this idea came to me, but I thought, well, what if I made these Eiffel Towers come to life and made them into little like cartoonish type of characters? And so that's what I did. So I started with designing different eye shapes. Uh, I started designing different like head pieces, designing how their arms would look, designing how they would actually look if they transformed from a painting into their little character. And I ended up with the five Eiffels. And from there, I wanted to create a storyline where they obviously live in the Louvre and they're hung as a painting and they come to life at night. But just because of my background with languages, I did want to incorporate languages in there because I thought it was so, as we say, apropos, it was so, you know, appropriate to put it in there. And I wanted to incorporate the Romance languages because they're all based off of Latin. So I included the French, the Italian, and the Spanish. And then I also wanted to make it educational. So that's why I decided to put in there art and history and geography because as the kids are reading, they're also learning. And I started out with my first book, which was The Five Eiffels, or Les Ankefel, The Five Eiffels. That was my first one. And then from there, I created the other two. And now I'm working on the fourth one, because they have to continue, obviously. If you, if you read the first adventure, it kind of left you hanging. <laughs> Little cliffhanger there. Absolutely. And so now I'm working, right? Yes. <laughs> Did that on purpose? <laughs> So now I'm working on the fourth one. I'm finishing to writing that up. And then I have to go and do the drawings because I do self-publish also too, Carolyn. So I self-publish all my books through my own company, Abruzzo Publishing. I do everything myself from the drawing to the writing, to the laying out the book, you know, doing the graphic design. I am a one woman show here. One of the things that I love about this is the languages, but you have a glossary. As the child or the adult is reading the book, you come across a word and then not only on the page is there the definition, but also in the back is an entire glossary. I love how you've included that and it's not obtrusive. As you're reading it, it doesn't interrupt the flow of the story to have the glossary there. I mean, it's just a quick glance if you want to know what the word actually is as you're reading it. Yes. And what's really neat too is you could even, if you, if you choose not to really learn the word, you can still read it in English because throughout the story, the definition of that particular word is right on the same page. As you're reading it, if you just want to do a, you know, a, a read all in English, you can, which is neat. And then you can always go back and then reread it if you want to challenge yourself and say, you know, maybe now I will try, you know, the different languages. And of course, I did incorporate the glossary because I think that it helps, repetition helps to learn something you always want to repeat. I did the glossary at the back because then once they're done with the story, they can always go to the glossary and look at the words again if they really want to learn some words in French, Italian, and Spanish and then I have it broken up too and what language it is that they're learning so you know what word it is that they're learning if it was a French word Italian word or a Spanish word and you also have about the Louvre in the back of the book too a history of that which I think is important for educating the kids about what this is so it's not just a fairy tale magic land where they are it's 
rooted in real life and it gets the history of it. Right. So in each book, depending on, on the book, obviously, in the five Eiffels, I do towards the last, it's the last page before the glossary, I put a fact right up on a particular ge- geographical place or item or whichever. So for example, in the five Eiffels, I talk about the history of the Eiffel Tower. In the, in the other book, the beginning, I talk about the history of the Louvre because it's based on the storyline. And then obviously in the first adventure, I talk about the gem. I don't know if I want to give that away. <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> right? But in each one, I do talk about something that is historical and something that is educational. And it might be even something you didn't even know. So as you read through the book, you might have seen, oh, I didn't know that maybe actually i knew about the diamond oh you did okay as a child going to see that and just being absolutely mesmerized and i don't know if the smithsonian has the story of it or if back in school the teacher told us the story of it but i just remember being so fascinated by that gem i did not know the story of it until i actually researched it but I did want it included. Like, I didn't know the whole story of it. I just knew, obviously, what it's called today. And we actually had to drive out to D.C. to go take a picture of it so I can put it in my book. <laughs> so that picture you see is the picture that we took. And then I was able to, uh, obviously, then put the photograph in the book to talk about it. But I didn't know prior, whatever we know now about that diamond, I did not know the, the history of it at all or how it even got to the United States and how it even got to the Smithsonian. So that was great information and research that I actually learned myself. I grew up right outside of DC and every year for our school vacation or school trip, rather, we would go into DC. And so the Smithsonian, the Capitol, the White House, the monument, those were all places that every single year we explored them. And I just have a fascination with history. So the Smithsonian was someplace that I loved to go. And when my children were little, I took them, but they're now in their late 30s and 40s. So it's been a while since I've been there. I have grandkids to take now. Yes, you do. Absolutely. And now you can incorporate the book when you show them the gem. (laughs) Well, that's one of the things about this book that I really like is I like exposing my grandkids to other cultures and just nonfiction, even though this is fanciful, it's still based on real things, such as the Eiffel Towers, the Louvre. This really appealed to me when I saw it. And I would never have guessed that you were not a natural artist because your illustrations are over the top. They are just exquisite. Really? Wow. Oh, I love them. Thank you. I love it. It's just beautiful. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, those are all done in colored pencil. And it all started because I had a nephew that asked me, oh, can you paint me a Disney mural? And how old was this nephew? Well, he's only 10 now. So he's he was pretty young. I wouldn't doubt if my sister had a little say into it too and said, hey, you know, because, <laughs> you know, she loves going to Disney World. Well, you know, we all love going to Disney World, obviously. You also have activity sheets that the kids can color, which I think is really a nice touch. Yeah, I have the activity sheets. They're free and uh, they're broken up by coloring pages and then by grade. Kindergarten, uh, the five rifles, that's more for kindergarten, maybe up to second. 
And then if you're more of an advanced reader, I think in second up to fourth grade, I would say the beginning and the first adventure because obviously it's a lot more words. And then I also have the different activity sheets. I have crossword puzzle. I have the word scrambler. And then I have just some quick activity sheet questions about characters and uh, things about kind of like the languages. So it's fun. And then the coloring, I have a couple of characters that you would have to draw a couple of things in there if you took a look at that and then get to color it in. So I tried to make it fun. I didn't want to put too much on there and get overwhelmed. I think that's great. And it's a free download. So you can't go wrong, right? (laughs) Absolutely not. It's perfect. Where can readers find your books? So right now, the books are available on my website, the www.thefiveifelsplural.com. That's where they're located right now. I do have some in independent bookstores in the Cleveland area. Probably the website will be the best place. I mean, unless you live in Cleveland. Fireside Bookshop, Topsy Turvy, Visible Voices, you know, some independent bookstores. When will the next book be released? That, I'm still working on that because this is the thing, Carolyn, I also, I wrote another series called the Chihuahua Venturist Children Book Series. We have these two Chihuahuas. Their names are Strawberry Nutella. So I decided to do it where it's more of like they learn kind of life lessons as Chihuahuas. And I already wrote the first one. It's already, it's already done. And um, I have to do the drawings. So I'm just trying to figure out you know, do I want to do colored pencil or do I, want to, do I want to learn how to do digital? I'm not sure yet, but that one's already finished. That's just the drawing. And so I'm trying to do work on that one. And that one's going to be for younger kids, like ages like four to eight more so, because it's going to be a little lighter. And then the Lysenka Fell, the fourth one, the fourth book, that one, I still have not finished writing. I'm halfway done. No pressure. I, I, I'll give you, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little info of what's going on. So in, in that one, I have them in Venice and that's all I'm going to tell you because you know they're in Venice right now doing something in Venice but then I'm kind of stuck well maybe our listeners can send you ideas oh that'd be great oh and then how did how did you like how I rhymed the whole thing that's the thing about my books they all rhyme did you notice that I did notice that and it is quite difficult for authors to successfully pull that off and you managed to do that Wow, thank you, because I would even rhyme the foreign words. Did you notice that? Sometimes I would use the foreign word to rhyme with like an English word. And so I just like rhyming. <laughs> In the Lysink Afel on, yes. I can't read, I can't find the page number, but it says, but France is my home. And then you have it on me, Corazon. Oh, yes, yes, right, right, I get that, right, I, I rhyme with that one, that's in the first one in the Five Eiffel book, yeah. Did I say no, that no. wrong? Then, no, you said it right. But then you say, like, in the one page, it's, it ends with, it's where I'd like to be, and then you say, we, oui, we, oui. so I see right. how you've rhymed it throughout, which was really interesting, it's fun. It, it, yeah, yeah, and then um, what I also did... I, okay, so did you notice on the the one that you have when I sent you the books, I sent you La Sankafel, The First Adventure, and I sent you the first edition and the second edition? Yes, I did noticed rem- that. Okay. Yeah, so did you read both editions or did you just read the first edition? No, I read both of them. And there's not much difference, though. Did I miss something? You didn't notice the difference? Really? Well, I noticed the artwork. 
Well, I changed a little of the artwork, but I also, with the first edition, there's a lot more foreign words than there is in the second edition. I noticed was that you changed the color of the foreign words. So in this first edition, it's all black. Yeah. It's just bolded. Yeah. But then mm -hmm. in the second edition, it is in red. So it really stands out that it's a foreign word. Yes, because I think it would be easier... Um, as you're reading through which word is foreign and just to make it easier to the reader. And then I continued that. And I also changed a little the fonts. And then I continued that when I did the beginning, which is the list I hit for the beginning. I, I made that similar to the second edition. And I changed a little on a couple of pages, some of the wording. Obviously, you didn't really notice. So that's good. <laughs> I feel horrible as a, um, as a host. I didn't research this enough. Sorry. <laughs> No, that's okay, because the reason I was mentioning it, because the first book that I wrote back in 2013, which is the Lysenkefel, the Five Eiffels, created a second edition. Totally changed the whole storyline. <laughs> and the pictures are the same, but I really changed, I don't want to say changed the whole storyline, but I added new lines, and I changed things around a bit. I noticed on your website oh. under the shop that it said second edition coming, and I was confused because I thought, well, I'm looking at it right now, but I didn't realize you had updated it. Now it makes sense. Yes, you have the first edition. When you look at the covers, I think with the second one I did where they're kind of looking at the blue gem, I think pertains more to kind of what's happening than just putting a picture of the castle they're visiting. <laughs> and it also pops better. I love the purples and the blues, but the second edition cover I think is it helps to, like you just said, it helps tell the story. So I like that a lot. It's active. Oh, good. It's not passive. It's active. Yes. Right. Where the castle's probably more passive. That's an actual, that's a great adjective. Yes. So in my art class, this is before I even did anything with the books or changing the Eiffel Tower paintings to characters, right? I, I love, ca I love painting castles. Okay? And especially the castles um, in France in the Loire Valley. So when I came across a picture of this castle, which is a true castle, it's the Chateau du Sully-sur-Loire, which is obviously in France in the Loire Valley area, I decided to paint it. So I actually have a 16 by 20 inch painting of that castle. And what I decided to do when I did that book is we took a picture of it. I created it as a cover. <laughs> So that's from a painting I did that I never thought I would use for anything. And I ended up using it for the first edition of that first adventure book. Isn't that funny? It is. It's, I love your imagination. That's one of the things, and I guess people who listen to the podcast are going to hear me say this every time I interview an author, but I just keep thinking, oh, you're so creative. You're so imaginative. And I'm a nonfiction writer. To read fiction and to see the creativity and the imagination and the magic behind these stories, I am just over the top impressed. And so, you know, when I gush, I mean, it's truly, I'm impressed. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's so kind. Thank you, Carol. You know, you talk about imagination. You know, what's funny is, oh, you, in the beginning of my book, uh, right, right um, on the copyright page, I always have a little intro there. And if you look at it, I always say right before I sign my name, I always say in every single book, always keep your imagination alive. And I think that is so important for children. And as they grow older, we put so many constraints on them that 
sometimes yeah. the imagination just dies because they didn't draw the human body the way we wanted them to draw it. And I mm -hmm. really, that makes, that makes me bristle when I hear teachers or parents or grandparents or adults tell children, oh, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, in that child's mind, that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. So let it be. Right. I mean, that's art is so subjective. And I agree with you 100%. I mean, there's so many artists that draw, you know, there's, there's different type of art out there. So whatever the child thinks it should look like, you're right, let it be. Not everyone's going to be realistic, you know what I mean? Or, you know, even in art, you don't have just realistic painters, obviously, you know, if you look at my paintings, they're not realistic at all. They're very, you know, whimsical. They're very, maybe expressionist, you know, expressionism. I, I don't know really what word to use, but I'm definitely not a realistic painter. I'll tell you that for sure. So. One of the characters in the first adventure that I really like is the blue bug. I think she is just adorable. Oh, you do like her. Her name is Corella. Corella. So, I couldn't pronounce Corella. it. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, I know. In Italian, you have to roll those R's. <laughs> you have to roll those R's. So it's funny because Corella, if you notice, she has a little heart on her chest. Yeah, because, you know, La Cora is the heart in Italian. And so I, what I, how I made up her name is, you know, because people might think, oh, that sounds like Corella, you know, Corella DeVille from Disney. <laughs> brought that to my attention and I thought oh I never even that never even crossed my mind because you know Corella DeVille right so I thought well let's see you know I had another name for her actually and I decided to name her you know Corella because cuore means heart in Italian so if you take cuore and add the LLA that's what makes her name Corella and that's how I came up with it. And, you know, there is a reason for her heart to be there. It just has not been discovered yet, because obviously that will be revealed in the fourth book. <laughs> ah, another cliffhanger. Yes, yes. Because you notice she has a heart on her chest, but, you know, why? Why is there a heart there, right? A shape of a heart. So, uh, and you know, oh, another thing too, you know, all my characters have magic. They're all magical. Did yes. you pick up on that? How each one has a certain magic? Yes, I did pick up on that. Yeah, so um, each one has a certain magic. Certain things are magical on them. And so we will find out what magic Quadella has <laughs> in the fourth book. <laughs> well, I am eager to read it. Yes, I'm so glad. I'm glad you like the books, though. That's uh, wonderful that you said that. Uh, that makes my day. It really does. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, you're welcome. I will put links to your your website and your social media in the show notes. But before we wrap up, is there anything that anything else that you would like to tell our listeners? Well, I think they uh, definitely, they should look into my books, obviously uh, check out. Oh, we were going to talk about languages and how language is so important to oh. a growing mind. Yes. I forgot about that. Go right ahead. Well, from what I've read, it's always good to learn languages at an early age because A, that sets you up to, that sets you up as an adult. If you ever want to pick up another language, it'll be easy for you because they say that it's difficult for adults to learn a language, but if you learn it as a young child, it is actually easier before the age of seven to pick up other languages. 
if you're introducing your child to language at an early age, they actually say that it opens up different parts of the brains. I mean, do you know anything about this, Carolyn, where it opens, it improves memory from what I've read, uh, learning languages at a young age. It improves memory. It helps them stay more focused by learning other languages. And it just opens up different parts of the brains that if, say, you weren't learning a language, you might not have that. I think that learning a language can really help improve with memory. It can help improve uh, a child maybe with focus. It can help improve them and learn about different cultures, which is so important nowadays. But even as an adult, they say that learning languages can actually slow down dementia. Did you hear about this or read it? I read about that. Did you know anything about that? No, I, I haven't read about that, but I can tell you as a teacher, as a retired teacher, I worked a lot with children who had learning differences. And one of the questions parents always would ask me is, why does my child have to take a foreign language to graduate when he or she barely can understand English or, you know, they don't understand grammar. And in reality, kids with learning disabilities often excel in languages. As you said, it really taps into a different part of the brain. And as the kids become confident in learning a foreign language, it often helps them improve the English. Yes, that actually is true. I did read that as well. When you learn a second language, it actually improves the first language that you're learning. That's so true. And it's interesting you say that because I want to tell you one thing. When I was learning French, now it makes total sense, but then I didn't realize this. So when I was learning French, my Italian became so great. Like, what? Like, why am I speaking better Italian? It was the weirdest thing. I could never understand it, but there's truth to it. So as I'm learning French, my Italian was getting better. And it was like, I was remembering more words in Italian. I mean, I'm fluent in Italian, but like I said, if you don't use a language for a while, it's like you get a little rusty. It's like, wow, this is great. So yeah, there is truth to that. And that's a great fact to express, especially to parents, because I get that a lot. You know, parents will say to me, well, why, you know, why do I want to buy your books? They barely know English. And that's a great, because it'll help with their English if they learn a second language. So, and that's a proven fact. So that's really good to know. Yeah. One of the things that I, that disappoints me is we don't teach children Latin anymore. And I think learning, I had Latin as a freshman and I think learning Latin is so important because it really helps with understanding the English language. Like people will say the English language is so hard, but if you break it down and really understand root words and prefixes and suffixes and understand the Latin and the Greek origins and sometimes French, it really helps you understand the language. And to me was one of my most fascinating classes. That's interesting because, well, Latin is the root of a lot of languages. For example, Latin is the root of Italian. It's the root of Spanish and the root of French. So the thing I found with those languages, because I know Italian, learning Spanish was very easy because Spanish and Italian are sister languages. They're just very, very close in speaking. So French, however, is a little different because a lot of the endings are cut off. You know, they don't pronounce a lot of the endings in French. And however, you want to hear something funny. So in Italy, well, I'm sure this is in other countries as well, but in Italy, depending on what part of Italy you're from, you're going to speak a certain dialect. So you have your Italian, which is the true Italian, 
But then in certain regions of the country, you're going to have a dialect. For example, I'm a Bruzzo, you know, hence my company, Abruzzo Publishing. That's a region in Italy. And so I'm Abruzzese. Okay, so in Abruzzo, you're going to have different, they call them provinces or, or provincia. From where my dad and my mom are from, even though they're from different provinces, they're still under the Abruzzo region umbrella. So the dialect that my dad had and the dialect that my mom had were still different, even though they were still in the same region. But my dad had more of the dialect from Napoli, the Napolitan dialect. Now, the history of this is the reason I'm saying this, because the history of Napoli, it used to be once inhabited by French people. So obviously, I'm sure French words were probably taken back. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So when I was learning the language French, oh my gosh. This word in French is my dialect in Italian, and I couldn't believe it. So there were words in French that in my Italian dialect was the Italian dialect. Does that make sense? That's wild. I was shocked. It, I was shocked. I'm like, wait a minute. That French word is our dialect. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is there French in us? So, you know, that was really weird to find that out, just to find out about that, because I thought oh my gosh, this is how we say it in our Italian dialect, but it's a French word. You know, but then you know the real true Italian word. So you're going to have your Italian word and then your dialect. And our dialect, like I said, part of it was the French. So I thought that was crazy. <laughs> well, look at the Spanish language. I couldn't believe it. You have the language in Spain, and mm -hmm. then you have the Mexican Spanish. And look at the difference between British English and American English. Spanish I use in my book is the Spain, the Spanish of Spain. Their Zs are pronounced like a th. So in Mexico, they would say like a heart is called a corazón, because they say the Z. But in Spain, they would say corazón, thon. I use that in my books because that's from Spain. Our second guest is Marine. Tenvir, also known as Mom at the Museum, on Instagram. She will share with us how her bag of wonders has helped her children come to appreciate art and enjoy visiting museums around the world. Welcome, Maureen, to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I think it is fascinating that you are not intimidated by taking your children to museums. How did this all come about? fun and just also kind of to inspire the moms that I know. I feel like museums are so underutilized by right. caregivers of young children and people are so overwhelmed or daunted by museums and I just kind of want to change that image as you know just in my circles that was the whole idea and I had started volunteering for the Smithsonian Institute as a gallery guide. Art was taking up a lot of my time. I was interested in it and I just wanted to connect it to children because I left work some years back to be a full-time mom and I love it and I think I, I just kind of threw myself into being a mom and kind of just I just wanted to share my passion what I enjoy the most in you know raising little human beings and <laughs> just expanding minds. Tell our listeners about your interest in combining art and early literacy. I did some courses at the Smithsonian Early Learning Center, SEEK. I think the acronym, acronym is it's housed in the Natural History Museum. So they offer some classes actually for educators. I think I used to be the only mom who used to attend these classes, but I was just so interested in early literacy and how art can be used or public places can be used to help children under five to kind of develop literacy. So I, I did that just because I enjoyed it and not necessarily 
for work, mostly just to kind of apply within my family. And then I just wanted to inspire, you know, others as much as I could. I guess I didn't have any aspirations of, of having like, you know, lots of followers. It's always nice. But the goal was just, you know, I, I, I try and take my friends, kids and, you know, neighbors and stuff. I, I've just tried to get more people involved. Tell us some of the things that you learned from the Institute. So one of the things is that I think I've always believed, but, you know, others have kind of laughed at me that, that you know, ba- babies understand. I think we we don't give children, young children, babies enough credit. Like we just think they won't get it. Like even if you read to them or if you show them an artwork and, and talk to them about it, just thinking that, oh, it's a waste taking a baby uh, to the spaces. I, I, so, so I think scientifically also they, they, sh- they showed that, you know, children... Uh, babies as young as few months can can respond and recognize their brains respond to, to take children more seriously. I think that was the first thing. And then, you know, that gave me the confidence that, you know, I'm not just wasting my time or my children's time. I think it's valuable to them also. And, you know, for me, becoming a stay-at-home mom uh, was not easy. I mean, I, I worked for, for most of my adult life and it can be very mind numbing, especially if you didn't have, I didn't have a lot of family. Most of my friends worked. So when I became a stay at home mom, you know, it can be hard. And my husband travels, I, you know, you don't talk to a grown up for days. Sometimes it feels like, so, so doing something with them and, and you take them to the park and they have a good time, but going to a museum was intellectually stimulating for me. And I met other, you know, like-minded moms or, or educators. And I just, I felt like, my kids are also taking away from that. So I think the first thing is to kind of give babies and children more credit as to how much they understand, how how they respond. And I also feel the more you engage with them verbally, visually, the more they learn. I think the more their mind grows. Is there anything else you would like to share with us that you learned at the Institute? So one of the things that, you know, I I learned here at, at the, the, the museum, I would say, and then have applied and I guess it applies to most sorry most of the age groups that you know you can think of babies or toddlers is that you have to be a little bit more creative when trying to develop literacy or or trying to develop their interest in art and using tactile you know if you're going for instance if you're going to go see an artwork if you can keep something for instance if the artwork has lines just keep like a yarn like a piece of yarn in your bag and once your baby or your toddler is in front of it just hand them the yarn and kind of twist it and when they can use that you know as many senses as you can involve you can use words or language around it like you know a circle or a wiggly or whatever this tip of using more senses uh, when dealing with children in the museum space really helped and I think that really made my children's experiences more valuable or enjoyable so simple things like that or just keeping some crinkly paper or something shiny if, if the artwork was something like that or something circular, you know, so just think in terms of simple things like shapes or color or texture and hand that over to your child when, you know, when you're in the presence of artwork. And another thing that, you know, they always applied in their lessons that they would make was, you know, the use of singing. And I'm sure if I'm talking about early literacy, uh, the idea of singing you know, bringing a poem or, or making up silly poems or whatever kind of also the, the really helps uh, and, and ch- children, babies especially respond to that. How did you prepare your children to go to a museum? So I, I know I've, I've read a lot of blogs also that, that talk about this and I, you know, I never stressed about it. It was a very natural process, but like I said, you know, like keeping a string, these things just they they just are in my purse or my I have a huge bag you know bag of wonders I would have 
things like that. And because, you know, I was volunteering, I spent a lot of time at the museum. So maybe it was easier for me because I just, I knew what to expect, right? In the museum, because I would go by myself also quite a bit. What I would suggest to somebody who wants to start doing this. So the first thing is if you haven't been to the museum yourself previously, and it's going to be the first time, you know, you're taking your children. One of the first things you can do is look at the website, because I feel um, museums, you know, you were the region that you wanted to talk about in the mid-Atlantic. You know, this is a great place to live or visit if if, if you're interested in, in visiting museums, because the museums here, you know, some of the best in the world and their education departments are it's really um, interesting that the staff that works here are really educated, really passionate about the work and the kind of resources the museums have on their websites and in person, like most of the museums in DC, uh, most of the Smithsonian museums, even the some of the private ones like the Phillips Collection, have a dedicated education office, uh, a room, a center, their staff, and somebody's usually there all the time. And so if you haven't had a chance to kind of look at the website before you go, you can always go to the welcome desk. A lot of them have resources available at the desk, something like, uh, you know, certain activities. You can pick up a piece of paper that will give you certain activities that you can do with your child during the visit. They can highlight some some artworks that have associated questions or, or, or games that you can play with your children while you look at those artworks. So honestly, like the museums here, at least in this region, have really are really welcoming of families and children. Um, and have a lot of resources. If you don't have time on your own to kind of prepare before you go, kind of look at the website, kind of check out what kind of artwork there is. You can always walk in and ask for it or just look for it and it's it's there. That's good information for parents and grandparents to know. What has been your children's reactions to visiting the galleries and interacting with the art? They've loved it. And one of the reasons can be that they've actually been going since they were several months old. And a lot of parents have concerns that, you know, our children will break something or touch something. And and a lot of museums also get, I've noticed, get uncomfortable, you know, when they, you, you'll see the guard tense up when they see like two or three children walk in to the museum. You know, you can see them suddenly becoming alert and, you know, the body lang- language makes you a little uncomfortable. But I think the more you take your children, the more they'll surprise you that you just have to tell them, you know, you have to you have to use walking feet and indoor voices. This is all stuff that they also hear in school, and they'll they'll recognize you know where they need to stop. But you have to do this a few times with them before you and the children can start relaxing and actually enjoying this space. And again, if you're in the Washington D.C. area, even New York, the museums there are very welcoming of children. I think the the era that you grew up or I grew up in, the museums are very different now. They're very, yeah, yeah, I don't remember museums being such great fun places for children, but if you feel like, you know, they need more space, a lot of these museums actually have dedicated rooms for children to play and touch and explore. There's that kind of space also if you feel like, okay, the, the gallery is getting a little overwhelming or, you know, it's, it's too quiet and, you know, my child's going to make noise. I can name several of the museums in DC that have dedicated spaces for children to come and uh, explore the works in in ways that are more appropriate for younger children. Oh, please share those resources with us. As the grandmother to six little ones, I certainly would like to know where the most child-friendly museums are in D.C. One of our favorite spaces 
is so the Smithsonian American Art Museum has it has a play area for children and also has an education room. And then it has the the cohort, um, the courtyard in the middle with that glass covered ceiling, and it has these water squirms on the floor that the children love love running in and playing. Um, and you know they're, they're very welcoming of children. I remember when my oldest was was young, I was actually it was a lovely place in the winter time to go because it's covered, it's it's indoors, but it's a glass ceiling, so you you get sunlight. So I was working at that time and I would come home from work and I would take, she was just a baby and I would take her and I was nursing her and, and I didn't realize it was time for the museum to shut down and the guards were asking everyone to leave. And then the guard realized that I'm nursing and he said, take your time, you know, <laughs> he said, we'll wait for you. Take your time. There's no rush, you know, and I thought that was just they would have to stay slightly longer before they shut down. But they were nice enough to accommodate me. And so there's that. A museum that has a space then the American History Museum also has a wonderful um, Wegmans play area that's been sponsored by Wegmans so it's basically around farm to food themed play area starting from babies to, to young children so there's that um, play area then so the Hirshhorn has have a learner's room which is basically like a large open space where they hold weekly story times for children and they'll bring out blocks and, and felt paper, felt uh, pieces and, you know, sticky stuff that kids can, you know, create artworks with. So they have weekly, like, certain timings when you have to go and you can have access to these the resources, but it's not a full-time dedicated space at the Hirshhorn. So these are the things that I can think of. These are the museums um, that I can think of that have uh, dedicated spaces for children that you can enjoy and then these are I've just been focusing on art museums but then there's always the, the, the natural history museum which is I would say my children's favorite especially my son's because he's so obsessed with dinosaurs and animals and everything fascinating so they also have explorer rooms which are amazing I mean you know forget my kids I get I become a little child in there because you can you know look at all sorts of samples of fossils or or, um, you know, gems or whatever your interest is. I mean, these are just really amazing and very hands-on experience. And they have like these microscopes and, and there's always staff there to kind of help answer your questions or, or go exploring with. So just amazing. So that's also a very amazing resource. I remember one picture I saw on your Instagram account and it was your daughter sitting on the floor with, I suppose, paper and pencils and she's drawing it was she trying to replicate the art she saw on the on the wall so yeah this was this is a, a, a tip I can share that you know we always do and again I always have like a sketchbook and not just for museums even when we go for a walk but in a museum it's a particularly fun thing to do it's just it's to sketch it's to sketch what you see because sometimes especially with you know non-verbal um, children very young children they may not be able to you know describe um you know what they see or and sometimes they just enjoy drawing like they, they they can and the thing is I what I find very interesting sometimes I'll sit with my kids and I'll start sketching and I I realize I'm held back like I'll, I'll find I look at a, a sculpture or something and I'll be overwhelmed by you know how complicated it is but my daughter like she, you know she's three or four and you know she'll very confidently draw and you know like a road and and she'll just get it because she just sees it she she's able to 
simplify it in her mind and sketch what she sees. She doesn't overthink it, right? I'll get overwhelmed by a sculpture and I'll sometimes be intimidated that, you know, I can't sketch this. But kids are able to just sit there and copy and they'll make something and, you know, and then she can tell you. And it's interesting how, what are the details that they they see or they notice or are important for them and what they filter out. So yes, yeah, so we we do this sketching exercise uh, as a way of looking because sometimes, you know, if you look at an artwork, um, I think there's some research that says that usually when you go to a museum, and this is not for children, it's for grown-ups, but I'm sure it applies to kids who probably have shorter attention spans, is that, you know, normally you don't look at an artwork for more than like I, I forget exactly how much it is, like three seconds or five seconds, and then you move on. But to develop the art of looking to become more observant, uh, you know, developing visual literacy. So you have to, uh, some, there are certain tricks you can use and one of them is sketching because if you give somebody a task that, you know, can you, can you sketch this or can you draw what you find interesting, then you pause and then you look in a meaningful way, spend more time looking and then, uh, you know, the, the different parts of your brain kick in because then you look and then you're using your hands to sketch. So there's this that feedback loop that starts and you know the, the wheels in your brain kind of start churning. So sketching I find is a very interesting way to develop you know more meaningful looking uh, when you go to look at art. I like that multi-sensory approach. Right, exactly. So, you know, again, back to that point of, you know, as many senses as you can engage. Tell our listeners about your children's favorite sculpture. It's only an American Art Museum. It has some wonderful artworks and they have this uh, in the Lincoln Gallery on the second floor, I believe it is. Uh, they have this room for modern art and there's this sculpture there and I'm forgetting the name of the artist, of a woman who's sitting kind of you know, she looks, she, obviously it's a sculpture. It's very realistic. So it looks like this woman is frozen and she's eating ice cream. And that was one of, for the longest time, my children's favorite artwork in that museum. Like every, like we, as soon as we'd enter, they're like, are we going to see that frozen woman, frozen lady having ice cream? They would just get such a kick out of looking at that woman. She's kind of like in mid, mid bite, just sitting there and very realistic looking. And, you know, the first time they saw it, they couldn't figure out if it, if she was real or if this is an artwork. We would quite often have ice cream once we would leave. There's all these shops nearby where we'd get some ice cream. Uh, just, you know, just to kind of continue the conversation as to why she was stuck or who was she or, you know, did she eat too much ice cream or what did her ice cream taste like? Maybe that was a, that's why it was their favorite artwork because we'd usually get ice cream after that visit. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, but it left a mark on them, right? They still remember it. I'm sure if you were to ask them, they'll tell you about it, that they would have noticed how much ice cream was in her bowl that she was having. Eating ice cream after you leave the gallery is definitely a multi-sensory approach to appreciating art. It's really worked for us. And I think it's it's made the whole outing very enjoyable when, when we can involve other senses other than just looking. With young children, it's important to reinforce what they are learning. So how did you extend the art gallery lessons after you returned home? So, you know, there's, there's different ways. For one thing, we've also bought a lot of books from the museum gift shops. I mean, that's another thing I, I absolutely love. I love 
museum gift shops be like we end up spending more money <laughs> than we intended to at gift shops so they have such amazing things but you know we for instance bought a lot of storybooks that are are written about artists or artworks and these are geared towards young children so so we read a lot of books about uh, some of their favorite artists and so you know at bedtime if if we'd seen a particular Uh, like Jojo Keef uh, you know just tonight just tonight when i was putting my daughter to, to sleep we read a splash of red um it's about horace pippin and uh, his works are also at the smithsonian art um, museum and one at the hershon it's not on view now but they used to have one when we used to go for story time so these are artworks they've seen and it really reinforced i thought one of the things that really reinforced their memory of or understanding of an artist or or an artwork is if you can follow up with the story that's connected with that and you know it's it's amazing how many books there are uh, about artists or or artworks and how you know well written they are and how approachable they make it for children how interesting they make it that's really helped that's one thing if we can read a book that's related to that and sometimes you know it doesn't have to be a book that's directly about the artist or the artwork it could be any story book you know if it can capture a certain emotion that we saw or, or a certain you know if we saw a particular artwork you know the certain works from picasso that are in the east wing of the national gallery of art that are you know they're, they're from his blue period they're just sad works and then you know if you read a book about you know a character being sad they can always kind of connect it with that that you know do, you know what did you think of the colors or you know something like that sometimes we read books actually in the museum also that's another thing that we've done and the hershon is great that way they actually on weekends have a station where you can check out a bag that will have a few books that you can just borrow and they'll they'll give you tips the bag will also have tips that you know this book is very nice to read with this artwork that's on view and so you can go sit in front of and and this is not these are not books that are about the artwork of the artist this is just a general story they're connected somehow with the artwork and the museum does the 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 work for you they'll they'll make suggestions that this would be a nice artwork to read this book with you can go read the book and then kind of connect it with the artwork i am impressed that museums are doing this and making art so accessible to young children you know the museums are closed we can't wait for them to reopen in dc but once they do i would highly encourage you to check out all the the educational programs that these museums are running it's it's beyond fascinating and the amazing thing about the smithsonian is that they're free and most of the programs that they offer if not all are are free and open to public is there any advice or caution you would like to share with listeners when you're visiting a museum with the, with children especially young children you have to be careful not to overwhelm them when we live in a city when we live in dc i, I never would go with the goal of seeing the whole museum with them or even you know more than just a few artworks um because there's, there's just so much that they can enjoy and, and take in Uh, now when you have the luxury of living in the, the city and especially when the museum is free you don't feel the pressure to kind of pack in as much as you can um so when we would visit new york there would be a bit of that compulsion right because these museums are not free especially if you don't live in new york right um uh, and they're not trivial i mean i i remember spending close to 100 dollars for a family of 5 
um, do you visit the Met? And then when you go, you're like, okay, let's just check this this gallery also. Let's just just a little bit more. Let's you know. So I felt like I was pushing the kids to do more than what their stamina was. So, but you have to be very careful, right? You you don't want to overwhelm them. You don't want to tire them out so that they never want to come back to a museum again. So you just that's just a caveat. Do your research. Choose you know, a few galleries that you think meet what your, whatever your children's interests are. Maybe just go to the front desk and ask them, what is the shortest route from this gallery to that? Because there's a lot of walking also involved in museums that are that big and kids get tired and hungry and sometimes feel the pressure because you've paid the ticket. You kind of want to make the most from your trip, but it can sometimes backfire. What is your favorite museum throughout the world? Like what is your number one museum? I really thought about this question because you you know I it's it's like asking to choose one of your who's your favorite kid you know <laughs> now if I if I really had to I'll choose the Hershorn because you know it was in DC I was I was volunteering there I have some wonderful friends there but more than that I really find the artworks that they bring the artists that they bring uh, just amazing the reason why I personally enjoy contemporary art is because you know when I would go to the National Gallery of Art you know it has a more permanent collection it doesn't change as often I mean they have certain exhibitions that change but they have a very large permanent collection and you know these are artists that are well established you know others in history has declared them masters and or masterpieces and you know you you kind of have to like them right you're like okay how can I say Van Gogh is you know not good or Rembrandt isn't good you kind of don't get to exercise your own judgment as much and I think there's so much baggage also that comes you know good and bad baggage that comes with a lot of these artworks but with contemporary art I feel like you know, who knows, in 20 years, these other artists might be in oblivion. I am free to choose or decide what I think of this artwork, whether I like it or I don't. I also find it very interesting what contemporary artists are doing with art, right? They're pushing the boundaries. I'm just blown away by how, like, for instance, technology is being incorporated or the kind of concepts. And I find conceptual art really something that I feel, I literally feel like my mind expands if I come across something that I like. It's ideas, you know, it's not just paint and and canvas anymore, but there's value in an idea. I just enjoy seeing the the boundaries of art being pushed. So I think that's why I really like the Hirshhorn because I think it's a leader when it comes to contemporary art. And, you know, they're also very representative. I feel like compared to some other museums, you know, you you must have followed uh, this debate about how Museums are, they need to be more inclusive and they need to be more diverse. And I think the Hirshon does a good job of that. But I, I feel like I get exposed to like a wider range of artists and artworks. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.